Brethren, we've assembled today to keep the Days of Unleavened Bread, and we are here on the first day, a commanded assembly to keep God's holy days. As we've kept the Passover, I trust all of you enjoyed a wonderful night to be remembered. If you would, turn with me to the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. And I'd like to point out here, not to read on here, but just simply point out as we begin this portion, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, So God gave them instruction, and it came directly from the eternal God. And if you had a red-letter Bible in the Old Testament, the words we read in this next section that we'll cover, they would, in fact, be in red. They were his words. And that instruction, we read in verse 15, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, and whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there should be unholy convocation. It's interesting because if you look in the scripture, you'll find this is actually the first place where the Bible commands a commanded assembly. That is a holy convocation or a keeping of the holy day. Now, certainly we know God's servants did. They kept God's Sabbath, but God had separated Israel. And now they were going to assemble as a people before their God in Jesus Christ. On the seventh day, there should be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Please remember that this was instruction given by God, in preparation. And it was given, as we read in verse 1 of this chapter, in the land of Egypt. So he was preparing them and giving them an understanding of what he expected and the holy days that they would observe and the occasions they would observe as he intervened in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. It says, so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. And the first day on the fourteenth month at even you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at even. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You know, it's interesting because many people believe that God did not say anything regarding the Gentile or the stranger regarding his holy days in the Old Testament. But when you actually read the instruction, you find, no, God specifically addressed them. And in this specific case, He made it very plain they were to participate. 
They were not excluded in some manner, nor did God treat them differently in regard to the days of unleavened bread as he did to the native people. It says, you shall eat nothing leaven. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. So we find the instruction of what we observe today, and the emphasis here is that you eat seven days. In the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 23, and in verse 6, the Bible is very explicit as the holy days are summarized and given in a summary we find that a very specific statement is made regarding the eating of unleavened bread. That's in verse 6 of chapter 23 of Leviticus. It says, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And in the living church of God, we have been very plain that we teach and believe exactly what God has said in this, in this manner, that every day we are to eat unleavened bread. And I hope, brethren, in this sermon to in part explain why, but at the very same time to emphasize it is not a ritual. I grew up as a youth in a Catholic church, and we did many things simply out of ritual. They were not necessarily fully understood, We did them because that's what we were taught to do. And God certainly teaches us to do this, but it's instruction with purpose and reason. Everything God does, and we see that in his creation, has purpose and reason. So as we go forward in this message, we'll discuss that further. I'd like to point out that this day also represented, as we participate by eating unleavened bread and nothing leavened, that this day also included a separation or a sanctification of the firstborn. Notice in Exodus chapter 13, in verse 1, we again find the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so this again is directly God's instruction regarding the observance of the days and in part, part of their meaning. It says, consecrate to me all the firstborn Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So God's establishing his relationship with the nation. He's making it clear that they're his people and that there's an ownership involved. And it's something we certainly understand in terms of our association that when there's an ownership and you're directly involved in that level, that it's a much more intense relationship than simply an association. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. So we read in chapter 12 the instruction God gave in the land of Egypt, Now we are reading, as God had delivered them, instruction giving them an understanding in one aspect of what had transpired. So God brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. 
On this day you were going out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, which you swore to your father to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. So it's not only something they observed at the very time of the occasion, it now became something they were to continue to practice, even as God blessed them and delivered them into the land that they all look forward to, that land of promise. So seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. So they removed it. It's the same thing we do, brethren. We remove the leaven from our home. Now, as we read on here, we find, again, God has said to consecrate or separate. Here we read in verse 8, You should tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. And I know that we've always encouraged a very appropriate topic of discussion or something to share on the night to be remembered and during God's holy days because it is a part of what we're actually remembering is our calling. It's when God called us out, when he separated us, when he worked in our life to bring us into the knowledge of the truth of God. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And so God's instruction reminding them that he separated the firstborn was to remind them also that he established the relationship. And that's very important for us to understand at a spiritual level. That God is the one who selected or elected to intervene in our life, to open our understanding. Some may be searching, some perhaps not. I know in my personal life, I really had very little interest in church as such. When God began to intervene in my family, when I personally took an interest was when I was a student at Ambassador College. In fact, I was challenged in the biblical classes I was taking because I was not a student of the Bible. I grew up in a Catholic church, and there was a Bible in our home. It was not one, however, I ever read or had much interest in. But when I became a student, then I was challenged because I did not have a good knowledge of the Scripture, and I realized that if I was going to be a good student, I had to really study. I was in a class of uh, 125 freshmen at Ambassador College, most of them had more association with the Scripture. Even if they were new to the truth of God, they had been, in, some, in many cases, a part of some other church or Christian, as we would call it, professing Christian group of people. And so I began to read and study, and I began to understand as I did. And, of course, I had teachers, but I... I found really that as I read and studied, I was surprised how many things I understood simply as I read them, and they were very clear to me. But I know that God chose 
at that time in my life to open my understanding. And I've always understood that it was his hand. Well, God reminds us of that. He wants us to know that. And that's actually extremely important in a relationship. Who established that relationship? Who has control of it? What is the foundation of it? And our relationship to God, in our calling, and our spiritual life, it was by his hand. Let's notice, even with the covenant that God established with Israel in the giving of the commandments, this is repeated. Notice here in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, and you'll read exactly the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 6. It says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. When God calls us, he literally is working in our life to establish a relationship, to give us understanding. And so God makes it very clear that he started the relationship. It was his hand. He worked in our life. In Ephesians chapter 4, God's servant, the Apostle Paul, brings us out in a different way. In Ephesians chapter 4, let's start and note verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He speaks more of that in verse 7. But to each one, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. And gave gifts to men. Many years ago in the Worldwide Church of God, under Mr. Armstrong's ministry, there was a booklet about this very title of leading captivity captive. And God called us out of a bondage, but not to the kind of freedom that this world pictures, but to the freedom that we find in the Word of God and in the laws of God. The freedom and the liberty that God's way of life provides so that we can live and understand how to live and the things we do without harm and without danger and with promises that bode good things not only for this life but for the future to come. It goes on in verse 9, Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. In other words, Jesus Christ literally died and gave his life. He was buried, and God could call us and give us that opportunity to be a part of his family. And it is established in forgiveness. But it is God who calls. Now, the Bible specifically addresses this. In John chapter 6, and in this case, it's a statement, I think we're all familiar with it. This is not new ground, but it's very important 
as we observe the days of leavened bread. And it's also very important in which in the times in which we live because it helps us to understand how God works and how he's working in our life. Many people view their calling and their knowledge and understanding of the truth of God as if it's something they did or part of maybe perhaps God opened their understanding. But from that point forward, God was no longer really a part of the picture in terms of how he guided and directed. It was up to them. The Bible really tells us and shows us that God is the shepherd of our faith. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. That he started a good work in us. And that he will complete that work. And so it's his hand, if we yield ourselves to him and we yield ourselves to the word of God, that guides us. But that process started also very clearly with his hand. In John chapter 6 and verse 44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a very straightforward statement. No one. There's no exclusion. There's no situation where this changes. God who calls. And I will raise him up at the last day. We read in verse 65, very same chapter, John chapter 6. He said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. God's the one who calls. We do have to respond. We do have to yield ourselves to God. We do have to follow the instinct of the knowledge and understanding that has been given to us and respond to it. We certainly have to do that. But God sees the heart. And I don't think he calls us at a time when he knows that we're not open, that we're not going to yield ourselves or respond to his calling. But he is the one who initiates the action. So this is important to understand. Because when we see that, we understand that, it also then should affect us in how we make decisions, how we view our Christianity, our relationship to God, and how we move forward both in this life in terms of those we associate with and what we do but also that applies in, to our understanding and our spiritual life you know it's interesting and i'll not go through the many scriptures but if you go through the apostles or disciples of christ in the gospels you'll find that time and time again christ said to them follow me you come and follow me we know in one particular case I said that to someone and they said look I have to take care of the affairs of our family there's been a death and Christ basically told the individual follow me no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God you'll find that account in the book of Luke you'll find later that the apostle Paul when God began to work at some point and made a decision that he would call him he struck him down And Paul had no intent to be a part of this small sect of people that he was actually persecuting. He was angry and and filled with strong emotion against them. But when that happened, he asked the question, Who are you, Lord? That's what he asked. Who are you? In fact, years later, when he was brought before King Agrippa, 
you'll find that Paul remembered exactly what Christ said. He asked, who are you? And in Acts chapter 26, where he is brought before King Agrippa, you'll find again, this is in red letter, and perhaps God inspired him to have a complete understanding, but I think he probably remembered physically. I think every word that was said, he probably could not forget. The answer to him in verse 15 of Acts chapter 26, I am Jesus. It was very clear. It was made very plain to him. But it was God who acted, who literally reached out and struck him, blinded him for three days, and worked in his life and turned him around to an understanding of the true Jesus Christ. God's done that in each of our lives. So we're his servants, but it's by his hand. As he told the children of Israel, he brought them out with a strong hand. That was his action. Now, we use our hands to carry out the actions often that we determine. Usually, it's either our hands or our feet. But most of the time, when we're creating something or building something or establishing something, we do so with our hand. If we greet someone or embrace someone, we do so with our hands and arms. And so we read, going back to Exodus chapter 13, It's interesting because in this chapter we find what is covered regarding what you are to tell your son is repeated. It's emphasized by repetition. In fact, if you go through the chapter up to verse, through verse 16, you'll find this is actually repeated three times. It's introduced, it's repeated, and then it's repeated again. Verse 11 It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The male shall be the Lord's. God saying, as he said before, it is mine. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. You notice earlier in the previous verse it mentions of an animal. And so in the next verse when it speaks particularly here of a donkey, it's referring to it as a type. In other words, all that was unclean, all the animals that were unclean, they were to be redeemed with a lamb, with a clean animal. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. It belonged to God. Either you redeem it or you were not to use it. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying. I know we're repeating it, but God repeated it. And he wants us to clearly get the message. What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand. The same kind of statement we read earlier said, by strength of hand, in verse 3. In verse 9, and a strong hand of the Lord. It was God's hand. It was his intervention. It was his action. Going back to where we were, 
says, by strength of hand, verse 14, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. Notice this knowledge, this understanding, the meaning of this, God says, is something that should constantly be with us and guide us. It, our thinking and our actions. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so one of the very important lessons that was clearly emphasized in the meaning of this day is that God set apart the children of Israel. They became his people. And brothers, spiritually, we have become by God's calling. We could not have come to the knowledge of the truth. We could not be a part of the true body of Jesus Christ, the spiritual body of the church of God, without the calling of God, without the understanding and the hand of our Father in heaven. So we yield ourselves to Him. We submit ourselves to Him. We understand that He will guide our life and He will work in our life. That He started in us a work. That Jesus Christ has become the shepherd, the chief shepherd of our salvation. And so we look to him, we yield ourselves to him, and we always submit ourselves to him. Let's go back to the question then, why must we eat unleavened bread for seven days? So it's not a ritual, it was done with reason and purpose. And it's interesting because if you think about it, We actually keep the feast having already removed leavening. Now that's something I think all of us do. My wife and I actually, a few weeks before the days of leavened bread, she will put those obvious leavened products, get in the freezer, go in the refrigerator, and if we have anything leavened, she will put it on a counter. Now if it requires refrigeration, then she may put it on a separate shelf. And we begin literally to use it we don't necessarily want to simply waste but at the same time we normally end up with a few things that just before the days of leavened bread we remove from our home in fact occasionally uh, i'll have a very little bag and i'll usually go someplace to where i actually do business in other words i'm a customer and i will drop that little bag and perhaps at a gas station in their little bin because Sometimes, you know, what do you do with it if uh, your trash man comes uh, two or three days later to remove it from your property? And so I, I do that. I think many of us do that. I do try to be considerate and make sure that where I go is a place where I do business and I am a customer and they uh, have provided a service for me and I'm, uh, you know, paying in a sense for Uh, their services, uh, whatever it may be that I use. But we remove the leaven. It's already gone. We've we've taken it out of our homes. And so when we think about keeping the days, 
physically, that action is complete. The only action then is left, because we've removed the leaven, is to eat bread that is unleavened. Now, we could take the approach, well, I just won't eat bread. But God says, no, we're to, you must eat every day unleavened bread for seven days. Now, why? Well, let's notice if we turn to the New Testament, we see spiritually God's reason. And we see the other aspect of this also in that as we begin the days of unleavened bread, we are, in fact, unleavened. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Now, the Apostle Paul writes during the days of unleavened bread to address a number of questions and issues that were part of the church in Corinth. And I'm not going to address those issues. One of them, however, was in chapter 5, the brethren had allowed themselves to tolerate sin, and especially the leadership who should have acted tolerated sin within the church of God that the Apostle Paul was compelled to address. In fact, he not only addressed, he took action that it be resolved as it should have been resolved through God's Spirit, through his leadership. And so we find that he makes it clear in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that a part of this was an attitude. It was not only what they did It was also the attitude, the underlying thinking about what they did. And we have the same kind of issue sometimes in our society where people, they view themselves as being bigger and somehow better because they're tolerant. Well, there's some things we should not tolerate. And one of those very clearly, specifically stated in the Bible is to transgress God's laws. There's never a time to tolerate transgression. God's people would not act, and nor should any of us individually act in such a manner. The result of this does tend to lift up human vanity, the human spirit, and that's what Paul observed, and that's what he said. In verse 6, he said, your glorying is not good. I don't know that necessarily they, you know, were at a certain kind of, you know, bragging about it, but there was a pride. You know, we're, we're, we can handle this. We're big enough. That's not God's way. It says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And that's a reality. You take a very small bit of leaven, whether it be from bread or yeast or something that will leaven. In other words, it creates that action of fermentation, a, a change that takes place. It's literally a chemical change. And if you do that, it very quickly will spread throughout the entirety of the mass, whether it be a lump of bread or a lump of dough. It will move through it. Verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven. But as he says this, because we actually have already done that, as we today keep this day, says that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. Now, is the statement to purge out not a valid statement? No, it is valid. Because we understand as we go into God's word, we'll see how we do that. The way we do it, brethren, very clearly, 
is by replacing the emptiness that is created with something of substance. We take the bread that we would have eaten that was leaven, and now we eat unleavened bread. And that's a very, very important part of it. Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So we enter the day spiritually and physically unleavened. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in regard to the days of unleavened bread, the Bible is very specific. In this case, leavening pictures malice and wickedness. It is a picture of sin. You can read in the book of Revelation where God used Egypt and he associated with Sodom and Egypt wickedness. Now there are other places in the scripture. In fact, leaven is also used as a type of the kingdom of God because it spreads, it will grow. The increase of the government of God, there will be no end. And so God starts something and it will continue to grow. But in terms of the days of unleavened bread, the symbol used and the reason for that symbol is of malice and wickedness, whereas unleavened bread is a symbol of sincerity and truth. So why do we eat it? Why do we have to do that? Why can't we just spiritually understand that and understand in a spiritual sense that that's what it means? And why go through the physical action? Why do we actually need to clean out the vacuum, maybe check the toaster and and look and, you know, go through areas of our home or our property, our vehicle, where we might, you know, eat something that would be leavened and make sure that it's removed? Why do we do that? If we spiritually understand it, why not just let it be? Well, the answer, as we go through the Scripture, is actually very clear. And I want to cover that and show why it's important that we go through the physical action. Yes, it is, with spiritual understanding. If we go through this physical action and we have no spiritual understanding, or if it means nothing to us spiritually, then you're really not keeping the days. The two are physical action and the spiritual fruit that is a part of what it does in our life, brethren, are related. They're very directly related. Let's notice first, when we talk about feeding on bread, the words of Jesus Christ, going back to John chapter 6. Because the commandment is you must eat unleavened bread. That's God's instruction. And in John chapter 6, Jesus Christ identifies himself as the bread that came down from heaven. That the unleavened bread, that bread that represents sincerity and truth, that's Jesus Christ. Notice here in John chapter 6 and verse 48, Is I am the bread of life. Very straightforward. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And we all ate of that. We partook of that as baptized members of God's church. And those of you that perhaps are reading and studying or new in the church of God, or young people that perhaps you're in your teens and you're looking to the future, the time will come when you enter into a covenant with God. And at that time, that covenant of baptism is then literally a memorial of Christ's sacrifice by being buried with him in death, the waters of baptism, is then remembered. We remember his death at the Passover. We remember it by his instruction was to eat unleavened bread. The Passover is kept with unleavened bread. It pictures the flesh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We read in verse 53 then, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. We read those days, these words, as a part of the Passover service. But let's notice as we read on. It says, And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me. That's an ongoing action. We literally feed on. It's not something you do on just one occasion. That's something most of us do probably three times a day, and perhaps at times we may snack. And it's not uncommon. In fact, sometimes it's very healthy instead of eating three larger meals to break down and and perhaps have five smaller meals. There's something that's required, something we do. We literally feed on. We are nourished by. We are strengthened by. We live by the nourishment of the food we eat. He who feeds on me will live because of me. And so in very simple and very straightforward terms, We do it every day because we need to feed on God. If we are going to remain unleavened, if we're going to remain and grow spiritually, it's because we're being nourished. If you don't nourish something, it won't grow. Any form of life requires nourishment. If you plant a garden, you know the importance that the soil is fertile and that you water it, that it's nourished. If you have a child, If you don't nourish the child, they'll complain. And they'll complain very loudly. They need the nourishment. All of God's creation, whether it's an animal, a cow, or a calf, there's an instinct, there's a desire, there's a need for nourishment to be fed. And and God has made, in many cases, miraculous provisions to feed the very young. 
It's always provided very good food for them. They need specifically what the mother provides in that very first hours and moments of life. It says, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. You know, what's interesting, the disciples didn't really get this. And they basically, you know, were still kind of wondering about what he had taught. And their approach was, this is hard. It's hard to understand. And, of course, Christ asked them in verse 61, does this offend you? says, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. You know, when we read of and see in the scripture, it says, Christ says, I am the bread of life. What he's speaking of is the message he brought, the words he brought, the example that he brought. Brethren, they are life. This notice in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, is again, bread is used as, in this particular case, of the word of God. In Matthew 4, in verse 4, this is an occasion when Jesus Christ was tempted. He was tempted of Satan. And his response to Satan when Satan actually acknowledged you are the son of God. You, know, you, you have freedom, do what you want. No, that's not the kind of liberty that God offers. God offers us liberty and freedom within the conduct and the lines drawn by his instruction, by his word. God lives by his law. You know, unfortunately, we live in a society many times where leaders pass laws or, you know, there are laws that they're not subject to. That'll be one thing that's uniquely different from the very top of the government of God to the bottom of it under Jesus Christ Everyone will live by the law of God. It'll be the same law to everyone. It reflects the very character and person of God. And so we read in verse 4, He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we drink in of the knowledge. We ingest literally the words of Jesus Christ, His instruction. And there's so many things that are brought out in the New Testament, especially in, in the gospel accounts, that have to do with our conduct, how we approach God's law, how we keep his Sabbath, how we understand and make judgments. And God makes it clear that there are principles of mercy and justice that he wants to have as guidelines and guidance to our decision-making and to our conduct, that we keep them as we read in the scripture in terms of relationship, we keep them right there in the frontlet of our mind and our thoughts, and they also guide our actions. In John chapter 17, and there are many, many verses I could read on as we get into this a little further, but here I'd like to point out to you, Jesus actually prayed, John 17, verse 3, says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's the knowledge of God. 
that we would actually know God and see His character, understand His person. But that's revealed to us. It's revealed to us in His Word. God hasn't revealed to us the physical aspects of His being. He's revealed to us His heart, His whole, His soul, His character. It's in that area that we're made. We're certainly made also physically in His likeness, but brethren, He wants us to be in His image. We read also in this same chapter, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You know, the name at this time didn't represent just a title. It represented everything that person was, what they stood for. Oftentimes, it would perhaps reflect their profession. You know, there might be a smith. Well, often a smith may have been someone who worked with iron or other products. Some of us have names that reflect perhaps the talent or ability of a family. of bakers. I think that's rather obvious. And so on. God's name literally reveals to, to us God. And it's everything about him. Christ said, I have manifested your name. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. We know everything that we read that Christ brought, it came from the Father. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me the very same thing that we see and we understand as God opens our understanding that Jesus Christ and his Father are one. They have the same character, the same decisions and judgments and how they would do things. There's very clear at times that Jesus Christ said he submitted himself to the Father. He also worshipped his Father. And he tells us that His Father is my God, even as He is our God. So God's Spirit and God's Word has opened to our understanding. It reveals to us God, His purpose, His plan, His character, His way of living, His way of life. In John chapter 14, In verse 21, because see, this also then relates to action. We're required to act. We're required to go in our homes and remove leavening. And then we're required to continually remember that we are not to eat leavening. In John 14, verse 21, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Belief or faith prompts action. All of you, include myself, in preparation for the days we now observe, took action. 
That was because we believed God. In verse 6, Christ said here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Go right back to God separated us. God's revealed to us a way that brings us literally and leads to the promise of life. And one of the things we all know in this life and we understand is that you can study something. You can go to college and perhaps learn. Let's use the example of medical school. You spend a number of years in training. But when you graduate from medical school, do you just simply go out and practice as a doctor? No, you do the academic work. Because it's very important to all of us. We don't want a doctor that comes to us and says, well, this, I've never done this before. You're going to be my very first. And, and we're in his office. There's no guidance. There's no instruction. It's just him or, or her. No, that, that's not where we want to be. We all understand that. What do we want? And what is required? Individual goes to medical school. They're required to do what? Then? To serve in a residence. In other words, they go and they serve depending on their practice, the area where they wish to later practice within their training, they go under supervision and under guidance, but now it's hands-on, and they literally are heavily worked. In fact, oftentimes residents for a doctor, they spend many, many hours, they're pushed, because sometimes that's a part, in fact, of providing medical attention. There are times when a doctor finds himself taken out of bed, maybe in an occasion where they have to stay up for long hours, but they cannot lose that attention, that medical alertness, as they literally perhaps are working on someone and what's involved is life and death. Now, we understand the value of that. And so we appreciate that someone who works in a medical profession they went through a time of training and supervision under the guidance of someone else. You know, even if you get your hair cut, go to barber college, what do they do? There's someone who's teaching them. If you go to a barber college to get your hair cut, there's someone else who actually is there to oversee to make sure that it's done well. And often it's instruction. Your hair may come out a little shorter than you intended, But you will end up with someone who has knowledge and has the ability to to make sure that the haircut is well done, that you become a part of the teaching process or a subject of that process. The same thing is true of a carpenter or a plumber. Now, why do we do that? We have the knowledge. We had all the training. We understand it. We do it because we recognize that direct involvement, literally through action, our knowledge, our understanding is refined, and it also now becomes a part of us. We develop the skill of practice. We learn how to do it, how to do it with our hands, how our actions, whether it be to do it with our hands or minds, whatever's involved in our profession, there's training involved. It makes it then something that is a part of you. 
In fact, in some cases, you may go through certain routines that you could do blindfolded because you have repeated it and repeated it. It becomes second nature. God tells us in the book of Romans that faith is the foundation of our believing, and that's from God's Word. Notice here in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And our relationship has that foundation. It is in believing. It is in the Word that was communicated to us, that we accept it, we believe it. But brethren, there is another step. And that is putting it into practice. That is living by God's word. In fact, even of Jesus Christ, it says in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews 5 and verse 4. It's talking of Jesus Christ who is our high priest. And the Apostle Paul is expounding here to the Hebrew brethren. The qualification, so to speak, or how God literally trained and put Christ in that position, in a relationship, to be our high priest. And it's very plain in verse 4. It says, No man takes this honor to himself. But he was called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. Very straightforward statement. But it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. When the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, that he truly believed, And it literally, emotionally, went right through his body and and hit every emotional response. But he totally submitted himself to his father. Verse 8, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It actually learned, say he went through an experience he had never been through before, to be our Lord and Savior, to be the captain of our salvation. And having been perfected, was he with sin? No, that's not the issue. The issue was not sin. The issue was growth. The issue was God was stepping forward and his family was going to be increased. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Because believing then is followed by action. And that action, brethren, perfects our faith. It perfects our life. It builds within us and makes it a part of us. That's why we eat unleavened bread. It is and literally becomes a part of that which nourishes us. In James chapter 2, and this is something that the world does not understand. They do not understand the relationship between faith and obedience, between our, the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and then the responsibility and actually to follow up on that 
by obeying God and putting his commandments, his laws into practice in our life. And it's not difficult or complicated. In fact, in reality, the things of our life, for most of us, we have widows in God's church. We have so many who are retired now. We have many who, throughout their life, they were not heads of state or heads of companies or foremen, perhaps even in the job. Many have worked with their hands. Many have worked in various trades or perhaps in factories and had opportunity perhaps to teach. But it was within a system. There are many different professions of people that God's called. But God says we're a cross-section. We're not the strong and powerful of this world. We're the weak. But it's important for us to understand how God's working in our life, what he's doing within our life to prepare us for his kingdom. Because God's far more concerned about the fact that you would be obedient and never lie than he would be about some physical talent. He's more concerned about character. Because character counts with God. In James chapter 2, we read of this relationship In verse 19, it says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. It's good. But it's not the end. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, if you read that and you stop right there, you will find other parts of the Bible that would actually contradict with that. You see, that is not the end of the thought. That is not the end of the matter. In fact, it's a part of, it leads on. Notice verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. The faith is what was made perfect. Not the actions, not the works. It was the faith. It was what was within the knowledge and understanding was perfected. And that's true in many aspects of a Christian's life. The Bible tells us, I'll not turn to it back in Hebrews 5, it talks about even our discernment, our able ability to make good judgment and to discern between good and evil is by reason of use. It's often true in someone in a physical profession. You look at a part and say, how do you know it's worn or it needs to be replaced? Someone who's trained and has pulled out parts and maybe done it repeatedly, they can look and immediately say, that's worn, that needs to be replaced. I I can look at certain situations like that and I would have absolutely no idea. You see, they've been trained. How? By doing it time and time again. And so... Our faith is made perfect by obedience, by repeatedly obeying God, whether we go through trial or difficulty in life, that we stay within the guidance of God's law, that we literally feed on Christ, on his words and his judgments and his guidance, that we wonder how we should act or what direction we should move. God magnified the law so we would see and understand not only his letter, but it's spirit. And we use that spirit to guide our actions. And when we do that, we are being perfected for God's kingdom. Let's notice here also, as we read on, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, 
and was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that man is justified by works and not by faith only. Verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. They work together. And you know, the message of the Days of Unleavened Bread is a spiritual message. It's that through Jesus Christ we have been forgiven. That God has literally removed our sins. And we are unleavened. And yet at the very same time, the instruction is for seven days you must eat unleavened bread. God wants us to understand what he's doing. It's like a trainer. You know, if you go to a physical trainer and you ask them, I, I, I want to tone up my body or I want to play a particular sport. Perhaps you plan to play baseball or you want to pitch. You know, today, because these things have become so important in our society, we literally have people who've trained to train a particular individual or a particular field of action, maybe to pitch a baseball, to swing a golf club, and they that's their focus. And they know exactly what you need to do the action you must take to produce the fruit. You can get in physical shape, but that does not train you unless you follow the specific action that they give to you, the program that you're given. It does not produce the fruit you want simply to be in shape. It might be an important part of it, but the real important aspect is the training the muscles, the flexibility, the timing, All of those things in terms of the actual action that you want athletically to reproduce, whether it's to throw a baseball, hit a baseball, use a tennis racket, swing a golf club, play whatever action or sport, whatever it may be. We understand that. We understand the importance of following the program. In fact, many people in our society pay very, very high dearly to have someone to give them that specialized training if they're proven to really have knowledge and understanding to produce results. That's what God's done. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks first of God's calling in verse 4 who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. It is through forgiveness that we are unleavened. But that's the beginning of something God wants to happen in our life, and that is the process of growing, of building character, of literally becoming, by our actions and by our faith, his children. He said, you are my sons and daughters. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. And the Bible emphasizes that to us. It's God's hand. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because our works are not going to, at the end of the day, be the foundation of our salvation. It is going to be God's mercy and it is going to be through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But brethren, God has a purpose in that. Just as he has a purpose in our eating seven days unleavened bread. 
says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He put us in a program. Keep the Sabbath. Keep my holy day. Keep that which is clean. Build a relationship with me in your life by tithing. Give to me what is mine and we will be partners together in your life physically. You obey my commandments to love God and to love your neighbor. You learn how I live and how I conduct and make decisions and conduct myself in relationships through fidelity and loyalty. All of the things that God's law teach us, they then produce what? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a message throughout the Bible. And we understand that, and we understand what the Days of Eleven Bread picture, that we are unleavened, that God wants us to feed on His Word, to feed on Jesus Christ who came and literally magnified God's Word so we could understand it, both by His words and by His example, that we could see His Spirit, that He was full of grace. And we can see that by reading the account of his life, the judgments he made and the things he said. That each day as we observe the days that follow today, that we eat unleavened bread, that we're reminded that we're being nourished, that we're being fed, that we are in fact as we have been made unleavened, that we're now filling that void, that we're being nourished by God's word. We've started a new creation. We'll be begotten by God to become His children, just as a baby in a womb. There's a life impregnated, but then it feeds on. The very life stream comes from the nourishment of of the body that contains it. That is, the mother, the church of God, of which Jesus Christ is the head. When we see that, brother, we see ourselves, we're encouraged by it, inspired by it. It helps us understand even the very simple things of our life whether a widow or perhaps we are handicapped in some way and we feel that we can't do the things that we could have if God had called us earlier, if we had been sustained in health, we then see that the things that God actually is doing in our life, they're the things he wants done. And they're the very things that would prepare us for his kingdom. And so as you keep the following days, be sure that you follow God's instruction. But brethren, do it with knowledge and do it with understanding. And as you eat the unleavened bread of the days of unleavened bread, remember, as Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life.